Hello and welcome to episode 26 of our Eurochat series. I'm Ken Sweeney and today with me is my colleague Ola Yashinska. Uh, how are you Ola? I'm fine. How are you Ken today? Yeah, great. In this episode, we will be taking an in-depth analysis of the current political systems in Poland and Hungary. And with us to discuss this is political scientist Edith Zgut. Uh, since escaping the clutches of the communist regime in the late 1980s, both Poland and Hungary embarked on a path to liberal democracy almost immediately. The last 30 years has seen numerous free elections and both states have embraced EU membership and all that it entails. But in the last brief five years or so, Poland and Hungary have been moving towards the Christian fundamentalist right, with both administration under one party rule in the form of Fidesz in Hungary and PIS in Poland. So how and why has this happened? Are the people of Poland and Hungary being coerced into following a more extreme path? Or is it the case that this form of ideology has always existed and now only coming to light? Edith Zgut is a political scientist and journalist focusing on democratic rule and the backsliding of Hungary in Poland. She is teaching at the Centre for Europe at the University of Warsaw in Poland and she is a doctoral researcher at the Polish Academy of Sciences. Edit is a Democracy Fellow at Visegrad Insight and a Rethink CE Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Edit, hi. Thanks for joining us at Eurochat. Hi, Ken. Hi, Oland. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. No problem at all. Now, guys, if you're listening on our podcast, we do a little bit of interference, but that is life, unfortunately, when we're talking all these thousands of miles. Well, listen, before we get into our topic today, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about what you do and maybe some articles that you where they can find you on? Yeah, well, thanks. Um, speaking of my professional background, I graduated as a political scientist and a journalist in Hungary. And uh, I have been working in the public media after Fidesz came to power. So I kind of have a unique perspective about how the regime and how Viktor Orban was aiming to capture the media, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and public media is, as you know, is traditionally a little bit biased towards incumbent government. But in Hungary, what happened that it, in the present time, it like violates all the basic principles and public broadcasting and journalism per se. So it sort of became a political propaganda and an instrument with the, with the twofold aim to undermine the opposition and to summon the Fidesz electorate. And this is exactly why I quit a couple of years after uh, to, uh, to start uh, as a political scientist and to analyze democratic backsliding in the regional comparison. And now I teach and do research in Warsaw, where I try to combine a multidisciplinary kind of approach, combining academic and soft skills. And my goal is to bring research findings a little bit beyond classroom and academic circles to a broader, broader audience. And this is why I'm very happy to be published by Visegrad Insight, among others, which is a main media platform uh, of debate and, mm-hmm. and analysis on the region. It's interesting that you've already um, started off by talking about the, the media. Um, and we were wondering, could you perhaps tell us more your thoughts about the the end of free press? So can the end of free press in Poland and Hungary be averted? Because it seems quite unlikely at the moment. And if so, how? Right. So let me start with the fact that, that all Visegrad countries, uh, all, all Visegrad governments have been trying to capture the media in their perf- uh, respective countries after the democratic transition, but to varying degrees and with a very different tools. And uh, as a result, that, that uh, just, just to put it into a little bit context, what media capture is. So this is when journalists are unable to provide balanced, fact-based, informa- fact-based information to check up on those in power uh, due to either uh, conflict of interest with the owners or direct uh, political pressure. Um, 
But, so if you have a look at the region uh, and the media environment, I think it's fair to point out that within the three, four countries, Viktor Orban's regime is the furthest into media capture and centralization uh, of the media sphere. In the last 10 years, the space for the independent media has been constantly shrinking in unprecedented ways in this country. Um, just to give you a re recent example, after the hostile takeover of the biggest independent website index, the only remaining independent radio station in Hungary, Club Radio, might cease to exist next February. So uh, what happened is that the media council composed of the government appointees just decided not to, not to extend its license. So since this government came to power, the media environment has been restricted from every angle uh, and it became a classic example of media capture. Um, um, and I think the regime itself pretty much reflects upon the, the media environment as a whole uh, because the government keeps sort of the facade of the democratic institutions, but it does not operate in a democratic manner. Mm -hmm. So to give you a number, today more than 500 government-controlled media outlets are ensuring that the government is dominating the political discourse. In 2015, it's been only 23 uh, media outlets at that time. Um, so it's a and huge most difference. importantly, it's a huge difference. And most importantly, this is a pretty hostile environment where the independent media workers are regularly smeared as political activists, Hungary haters, foreign agents and traders. So as a result, Hungary has fallen to the lowest ever position in the World uh, Press Freedom Index recently. Uh, and it has been sort of uh, the sixth uh, consecutive decline in the ranking. Uh, when it comes to Poland, the situation is a bit different uh, because in contrast to what happened in Hungary, the media landscape is markedly different uh, in this country, uh, despite, this, so, despite the fact that the state-owned media have been also turned into a propaganda tool by PIS government, uh, and it has been increasingly used as uh, to harass journalists and private media sphere. Uh, but the, the private media sphere remained quite diverse. Um, so what we have seen is that the government here has attempted to capture the media by selective advertising spendings. Uh, the primary example, one of them was, for instance, Gazeta Viborcha. I think it's a good example because in 2016, uh, the state advertising revenues for Gazeta Viborcha went down by like 15%, while the government-friendly daily Cespospolita experienced a huge increase in state advertising allocations, almost like 50%. And right now that Andrzej Duda has won the presidential elections and in the uh, PIS government has won the fourth um, uh, sort of electoral, electoral victory, uh, this is on the horizon pretty much that the repolonization or sort of the deconcentration of the media uh, could happen. Um, there are negotiations about that uh, and we will see how it's going to occur. Um, but there are certain sort of attempts for the government to, to cut foreign subsidies. Pre previously, it has been sort of tuned down by uh, mainly due to American pr diplomatic pressure. But this time, PIS might try to sort of have its cake and eat it too by introducing a regulation that will apply to future acquisitions, which means that it will in practice not have an impact on the current media status quo. We will see. It's interesting that you mentioned um, uh, the difference between Hungary and Poland and then you broke it down into public, state-owned uh, and private uh, media in Poland, how they, that's a little bit different to what's happening in Hungary. However, you mentioned the two newspapers, but um, something that was actually quite close to my heart is the famous Polish radio station Trójka, so the third 
um, channel of the public uh, Polish radio, which for years and years have been uh, has been regarded as um, quite an uh, elite radio station, one that was very progressive and very liberal minded. And yet, since peace came into power, and especially since 2015 elections, uh, Trójka has been bit by bit uh, shredded to pieces. Um, and you probably, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And thanks for pointing out to that. And I think it pretty much fits the, the general trend that we have been witnessing uh, in Poland since uh, PIS came to power in 2015. And just a little bit speaking about the comparisons, as you also mentioned, um, I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to read this brilliant book, How Democracies Die, from Stephen Lewitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. But if you have a chance and if you read it, you will see that I mean, what, it, what occurred to me is that Jaroslav Kaczynski and Viktor Orban were using a quite similar sort of authoritarian toolkit, how to consolidate their power. Uh, so the, the main three pillars I would just very briefly outline is that they try to hollow out democratic institutions of content. They sideline key players in the political system using state resources against dissidents. Like we can talk about, you know, like uh, uh, judges, but also like media workers. And also they rewrote the rules to create a very uneven political playing field. Uh, and all these three have applied to both regimes, but to a very different extent. So what we've seen in Hungary is that it, it truly became a laboratory in this regard. Mr. Orban has rewritten the constitution's eight time as I mentioned, to capture the referees and, and, and the media, to tilt the playing field for its own benefit, and uh, also to criminalize civil society and the opposition and to restrict the academic freedom. Uh, the latest battlefield you might have heard in the news is that recently several, uh, several hundred students of a very prestigious university of uh, theater and film arts in Budapest occupied a campus building uh, amid a sort of a power struggle within um, within the governmental camp and the uni university's sort of leadership uh, due to autonomy. Uh, but the, the, the key feature of the regime is very much, and here I, I which leads us to the systemic uh, differences, is the systemic corruption system in Hungary. Uh, so due to the lack of horizontal accountability, the institutional environment has provided a lot of comfortable, comfortable space for, uh, for the regime to build up a legalized, centralized state corruption. Um, and as a result, Hungary became the second most corrupt member state in the, uh, in the EU after Bulgaria. And uh, Poland uh, is rapidly shifting towards the similar sort of direction, but it's nearly not there yet. And part of the checks and balances in Poland are, are still working. Um, so uh, what we have seen is that um, sort of the only uh, like sort of uh, like area where where PIS has overperformed uh, Viktor Orban's government is ju judiciary overhaul and uh, and and PIS indeed has been playing constitutional hardball and openly violated the legal order uh, for years but I think it's important to highlight that for the moment uh, in Poland like many there are many institutional advantages that that could reverse the trend um, like a multi-level multi governance system uh, with a sort of huge autonomous uh, voivodeships. There's still independent body of commercial media and uh, universities are mostly politically free. Um, and compared to Orban Kaczynski, Mr. Kaczynski has to deal with several competing networks, which might limit his effectiveness in, in the long run. Um, so this is exactly why why we have heard more and more reports that gov that the Polish government would like to move forward 
with authoritarian system building because they would like to complete the judiciary reform and overcome what Mr. Kaczynski has called the, sort of the last barriers uh, ahead of you know the system transformation that is willing to sort of um, it's, it's questioning the very uh, achievements of the democratic transitions, uh, just like in Hungary. This is how they are trying to introduce a new type of transition, mm-hmm. um, which I, is needed. I actually think I, I, I wanted to add one more, one more point here. I think it's, um, it's quite interesting how these three things, um, you can tie these three things together. So the public radio and TV, the parliament, uh, so in Poland, same and Senate and um, the Supreme Courts. Because for years now, um, we've been hearing about how they're fighting for the independence and how the opposition is um, accusing that these organs are no longer, these bodies are no longer functioning properly. But in fact, they still have been, you know, they are still there, they're still in place. But what PIS have been very cleverly doing, he has been, it's been hollowing out, as you said, these institutions and putting in their people who are, mm, who are in favor of them. And that's how the bodies are still working. Working, but they are working hugely to the advantage of the ruling party. There's just a little comment on, on, on my side. But I wanted to ask you, Edith, if you could say, um, what do you think are the social preconditions for these two regimes now? Yeah, well, uh, right. I mean, in order to understand the, the sort of the durability of the regimes, it is very important to have a look at the, the, the social preconditions and, and what exactly is uh, sort of what are the dynamisms uh, within this society. And uh, very briefly, I would highlight four main factors here, which I think uh, are of systemic importance. Uh, one of them is that, uh, I mean, without uh, any kind of generalization, because I think it's very hazardous, but I think we could spot and identify some similarities when it comes to Central Eastern Europe as a whole. So first of all, uh, anti-establishment sentiments and very complex cultural and economic anxieties have been very successfully exploited by uh, by PIS and Fides. So what they did is that they directed this sort of anxiety towards internal and external enemies. It's a very anti-pluralist, populist sort of strategy. Uh, internal enemies, the opposition, and the external enemies are the EU and the alleged dangers of multiculturalism, migrants from Muslim world, and so-called anti- uh, LGBTQ and gender ideologies. It is a very strong uh, sort of, as I mentioned, anti-pluralist approach that depicts the critical actors independent of the government as the sort of the main enemies of the state. Uh, so that's, to start with, that's the main polarization strategy. And secondly, uh, the region, Central Eastern Europe in general, has served as sort of a role of an early warning system for the West, where the very low level of interpersonal trust and low level of social capital and very low level of trust within democratic institutions were quite favorable uh, backgrounds for uh, anti-democratic backstanding per se. So, um, for instance, give you one, one example. Um, what we have seen is that the, the trust, for instance, within the European Parliament in the region is remained remain very high, but this is also partly because uh, it is strictly related to the lack of trust within democratic institutions. Um, and the third factor is that while all ordinary people were sort of depicted as losers of the democratic transition, uh, also the leftist parties have kind of lost their credibility within the working class in the last two decades, especially in cities where they felt that they have been absolutely left behind. And it provided a very comfortable, uh, like practical advantage for PIS and Fidesz. 
So first of all, it made it possible for, uh, for these governments to fill the gap and ride the wave of dissatisfaction with the democratic transition. And this is how Orban, Mr. Orban and Mr. Kaczynski could sort of build uh, a new type of democracy uh, to correct the transition, and it fell on a quite fertile uh, soil in both countries. Um, this is how they could successfully appeal to those who felt they are really left behind. And in Poland, it has been manifested in this unprecedented social welfare program that aimed to restore the dignity of the working class. And PIS has successfully repoliticized sort of these economic issues on a very conservative value basis, which resulted uh, in mass clientelism at the end of the day. And my last point here, last point here, which is I think very important regarding the institutional. Um, the rule of law, rule of law deterioration uh, is that both Mr. Orban and Mr. Kaczynski are successfully riding the wave of uh, impatience with liberal constraints on the government. So they're depicting the checks and balances as sort of obstacles of getting things done for the few people. So mainly this is how they justify their all their system transformation efforts and fight against also against the EU. European Union, which is in their narratives representing the, the corrupt elite. It's actually quite shocking in a way, as you say these things uh, out loud one by one, as you were saying and uh, counting them out. It actually strikes me that we've heard it all before. We Poles, we Hungarians from the Eastern, you know, all of us who, who, who come from the former Eastern Bloc, we've heard all of this before you know, in the 50s, in the 60s. That's exactly the same narrative that was used towards other, you know, other strangers, other foreign uh, bodies, other others, if you know what I mean. And it's it's quite shocking that uh, 50, 60 years on, the same narrative is being used uh, but by those who are fighting the communists, supposedly. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And um, I mean, I think especially not only because of the coronavirus and, and all, the, all the sort of phenomena, which was sort of a result of, of this kind of global pandemic crisis, um, but also like uh, if, if you think it over like the last couple of years, how the Euro, this Eurosceptic populist sort of strategy has been built up by these countries, it very much resembles of, of the sort of the anti-imperialist sort of connotations and themes that prevailed, um, you know, like uh, in the 50s and 60s or 70s in these countries. And this is one of the sort of the main um, attribute that where we could differentiate between uh, Eurosceptic populist sentiments of Central and Eastern Europe and, for instance, same sentiments uh, in, in the Western countries. Um, because Kaczynski and Orban are accu accusing sort of the Western European countries that they're harboring colonial uh, colonialist sentiments towards the region. Uh, and due to their imperial sort of past, they're willing to exploit Central and Eastern Europe economically and politically, which means that at the end of the day, uh, in the Central Eastern European region, the focus is really about overcoming historical traumas and humiliation, I think. Do you think that expulsion or enabling the current administrations in both countries is the choice? Or is there another way, especially when it comes to the European Union membership? Yeah, that's a very good question, Ken, because um, I think it's quite worrisome that what we've witnessed is that despite all the doctrinal innovations and new ideas that the European Union has came up with, uh, it was simply incapable of preventing any further deterioration in Poland and Hungary. Uh, which, which really like raised a lot of questions about both 
not only the, the state of democracy in these countries, but also the constraining role of the European Union. What we've seen is that the EU has been going around circles and circles due to a troubling lack of political will in the EU Council and in the European Commission. Uh, and what I think what history taught us is that EU is mainly willing to exercise this kind of constraining role, this power, when it comes to the stability of the Eurozone. Like in the case when the member states are violating, uh, obviously violating economic criteria. You remember like primary example was Greece in this regard. Uh, but when it comes to democratic uh, deterioration and, and rule of law backsliding, that's that's different. I mean, obviously, one of the sort of most it's it's not it's not a doctrine innovation. It has been there in the in the in, in the EU treaties. This Article Seven, uh, we have seen that it is absolutely not suitable for this. I mean, it's pretty straightforward and a blunt instrument in a community that try to avoid harsh language and sanctioning its own member states, um, and it all comes down in the in the council, you know where. Member states are really protecting each other. Uh, I think what is what is would be really needed. My my point here is that that a lot more progressive infringement actions should provide sort of uh, enough space to restrict authoritarian regimes, um, uh, because I think it's better to try to use the currently existing legal, legal toolkit uh, in a much more effective manner. In case of Poland, so far we have seen is that only infringement procedures could somewhat at least showing, slowing down um, this kind of authoritarian trends. But the problem with these infringement procedures is that they are typically targeting specific violations of the EU law and cannot really grasp the very systemic nature of tiny, small strategic tactics that drive democratic backsliding in these countries. Um, so what, what I'm trying to say here is that Poland and Hungary, at the end of the day, are quite untouchable for Brussels, partly because the EU procedures are aiming at monitoring the institutional and legal system, and it cannot really deal with the informal power tactics of, of Viktor Orban and, and Jaroslav Kaczynski. So uh, I think what would be most crucial and needed is that uh, infringement procedures should be sort of the Commission should bring more uh, infringement actions regarding Article 7 procedures, and it has to prioritize issues regarding, in Poland, over-politicized uh, National Judicial Council and the Constitutional Court. And regarding the Hungarian media capture, the European Commission has to sort of, it has the authority to launch proceedings against prohibited state aid. So it has to stand up like faster and more effectively. Um, and most importantly, in the Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice will have to, in the future, prioritize these infringement actions to prevent further harm done by national governments before, at the end of the day, the rulings are issued. The main question, though, I have about this, and I'm taking this from a kind of devil's advocate point of view, and we did um, address it in the opening of our podcast. The big question for a lot of people uh, in Europe, and even for their field, when they look at Hungary and they look at Poland and the way it's developing in a social sense, not just a political way. The, the, the question, I suppose it has to be asked, I mean, do the people actually just want this? I mean, did, are they happy with the decisions that their governments are making? I mean, what I'm trying to ask is, is there really, um, you know, a liberal democracy there in Poland and Hungary? Or is it something that maybe just was being smoothed over because, you know, membership for the European Union was new, it was fresh. Um, Poland was experiencing a lot of, you know, Poland and Hungary were experiencing a lot of freedoms over the last 30 years that they didn't have the 30 years previous to that. So the question I'm asking is both very, you know, Christian fundamentalist in some ways. 
is it just not a case that these countries are extremely conservative and that they're actually happy with the situation that they're in? And maybe if there was a Poland Brexit or a Hungary Brexit, that they probably would leave. Yeah, well, that's uh, that, that's a good question. And I think like partly I've already uh, sort of responded to that when I, you know, I was listing these kind of social preconditions, how exactly uh, the societies became more prone to this towards these ideas. Um, but I think we would also need to, um, maybe I haven't been really ex uh, like emphasizing this enough, is that the way how um, the government has started to depict the European Union in general, uh, for instance, in Hungary, the government has spent more than 200, uh, uh, like sort of million euros on campaigns against both, it's a combined campaign, both against uh, George Soros, uh, and, and the European Union. So this kind of disruptive conspiracy theories about how Brussels is willing to undermine the will of the Hungarian people uh, became sort of integrative part of the of the political discourse. Uh, and um, so the EU has been depicted as sort of the greatest challenge as an existential threat. And so despite the fact that the, the support towards the European Union in this in this region has been traditionally high, I would say that these uh, disruptive uh, campaigns have not gone under the radar without an impact. It had a huge impact on the public attitudes and especially right now uh, that uh, there is a prolonged global crisis combined with sort of multiple anxieties, um, sort of the, the EU institutions, you know, are, that's the main narrative. They're not able to help and they could sort of, uh, it could indeed result in, in very much centrifugal forces when it comes to your skepticism. And also European Union is, I think, a very easy target, like blaming it for its sort of competences of inaction. It's quite comfortable, especially during the pandemic crisis. Uh, in practice, it wants it's uh, elevating some responsibilities from national governments and also scapegoating may also resonate with an electorate, which is quite desperate to find answers in in uncertain, like, uh, time full of crisis. Edit, maybe to wrap up, what do you think, what would be the best plan for the EU to constrain both uh, these regimes? As I just mentioned in, in the previous sort of block, uh, I think it would be extremely important to focus on the currently existing mechanisms, uh, in, like, especially making uh, infringement procedures more effective. But um, I think it's fair to point out that one of the most sort of significant doctrinal innovation uh, of the last uh, couple of years was this uh, conditionality proposal of the Commission to try to tie EU funds to the respect of the rule of law uh, with a very strong anti-corruption angle. And I think arguably this is really one of the strongest means of influence when it comes to these, these uh, governments uh, uh, related to budget discussions, because both Hungary and Poland are main beneficiaries of, of the EU uh, subsidies. Uh, like in Hungary, EU subsidies account for like up to 5% of the GDP, and they have been primary target of systemic corruption. Uh, so end of the day, they serve as an important role in legitimizing and supporting the regime. Um, but, you know, my, my problem with these doctrinal innovations is that there's some very often coming up simply as an excuse not to use the currently existing EU mechanisms that I just mentioned. So I would I would rather review with those scholars such as Daniel Kellerman or Kim Lane Chapelle or Lauren Pesch who claim that first the currently existing toolkit should be used in a more effective and systemic manner, uh, just like the common provision regulations, 
which is already a sufficient legal basis to suspend EU funds when it comes to um, the violation of the rule of law and democratic norms in a country. Um, and here comes the question, what is about to happen, whether uh, these these governments are going to veto the budget at the end of the day, you know, within the MFF sort of horse trading. Uh, I would say probably not, uh, but we will see. Um, Hungary and Poland are for sure, but they would like to ensure that there is no conditionality regarding the rule of law being tied to EU funds. And they made a big show during the last EU summit uh, fighting this prior, uh, sort of these kind of priorities. But they eventually backed down for the sake of Europe, you know, um, that, that's how it ended. So the, the second round is coming in autumn. Um, but I think, uh, like, especially like Viktor Orban might be just backing down for mainly for economic reasons. I mean, um, you know, the, the Hungarian economy is uh, likely to shrink due to coronavirus. And I think the, the entire uh, Central European sort of uh, region is about to see um, an, an economic sort of um, like issues we haven't really witnessed since the, since the collapse of, of uh of the communism. So I think like uh, these countries, they do need EU support as, as much as probably ever. And I think they will try to get the rule of law conditional, conditionality burdened as vaguely as possible, but still get the funding package approved at the end of the day. Edith, mm. thank you for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate your insight into what will surely be a situation that will continue to develop for a considerable time to come. Edith, if our listeners again want to follow you, um, what is the email address for maybe where you do a lot of your articles? Well, um, I would suggest to um, to follow me on Twitter because I'm quite active there. And um, and again, Vishagradin said is, is sort of the perfect platform to check up on if anybody would like to have a sort of a comprehensive understanding about what's going on in the region. And this is exactly where I'm being published on the regular yeah, basis. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent media platform. I follow it myself and um, it's it's really uh, great to get such detail because obviously the Western uh, media does cover the situations, but they tend to cover it from a sensationist point of view with a lot of headlines and so on. So it, it's really important that we have people like yourself who can actually write a lot of detailed articles so that people can get the real good information. You've been listening to episode 26 of our Eurochat series. Many thanks to my colleague Oli Yashinska for sharing the mic with me today. You're very welcome. And uh, if you want to find out about more that we do, you can take a look at our website, which is europeunited.eu. And we are also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at europeunited.eu. Edith, thanks very much for joining us today. I would like to thank you for inviting me. It was a true pleasure to be on board. You're very much welcome. And uh, we hope maybe to talk to you soon. Thanks, guys, for joining us. We'll be back uh, real soon with episode 27. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.